Welcome to episode 72 of Bulak. I'm Ursula Lindsay, and with me as always is Marsha Lynx Quayley. Hello. Hi, Marsha. Um, Marsha is in Morocco, which is where the football chant that we just played uh, is actually from. Um, this is probably the most uh, famous, controversial uh, a chant of a football team in Morocco, and it's uh, one performed by the fans of the Casablanca team, Raja. And the reason we're featuring it is because uh, we're going to be talking about all things football in this episode and um, all the different kinds of writing that surrounds football and all the different uh, doors and roads that are connected with, with football. Um, and the inspiration is partly because Marsha has just finished putting together an entire issue of Arab Lit Quarterly on this topic, um, which I imagine has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it has been. It has been. It's been very different from other issues, which I hope we'll we'll talk about. And in terms of, you know, sort of looking for popular literature in in very different areas, including the popular literature of, of football games, which is like these these chant poems. Yeah, which are which are really, I think, um really kind of impressively uh constructed and and quite striking. Um and and but before we get further, maybe we should say what this you you have a translation of this chant as of you do of other chants uh, in the issue. Um, so let's talk about this Fibiladi Dalmuni, this this particular chant, and what these soccer fans, these football fans. I'm sorry, I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> we've decided to use football, and that is the correct term. But um, I may slip up a couple times. Uh, what they're what they're what they're singing about in the stadium. Right. So we have football chants from five countries in this issue. This uh, The ones from Morocco were curated and translated by Hishem Rafiq, uh, who is also here in Rabat. This one is, I was wronged in my own country, and I'll just read from it in, his, in Hishem's translation. Oh, 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 I was wronged in my own country. Oh, 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 to whom shall I raise my grievance? Oh, 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 to the Lord Almighty. Oh, 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 he, the only one who knows my sufferings. We live a miserable life in this country. We are seeking peace. Oh, our Lord, make us victorious. They killed us with drugs and left us like orphans. We will seek revenge on judgment day. You wasted our youth's talents and you destroyed them with drugs as you always wanted it to be. You sold our country's wealth and gave it to foreigners. You repressed a whole generation. Oh, 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 you killed the passion. Oh, 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 you started the provocation. Oh, 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 you killed the passion. Oh, 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 you started the provocation. No one feared what you invented, what you used on us. You just wanted to rule us. For a flare, you sentenced us with huiclo. You banned the TIFO. You waged a war against the ultras. You accused us of inciting riots. You forgot how much you applauded us. Now you reward us with months in prison. You've ruined the Rajawi's lives, their jobs, and their studies because you didn't understand the meaning of passion. Oh, 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 oh. I'm sorry, my family. Oh, 
oh, oh, oh, the talk about me has become too much. Oh, 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 it's getting on my nerves. Oh, 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 just understand me already. Every day, the same speech at home or in the streets. What did Raja give to you? You lost your whole life for it. So much money spent on it and never abandoned it. My dear ones, just understand me. Why do you want to separate me from Raja, which consoles me? This is my final word, written from my heart with tears in my eyes. Oh, 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 repentance belongs to the Almighty. Oh, 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 our Lord accept our repentance. And, and one thing to keep in mind is that all those passages where it says, oh, 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 you have to imagine tens of thousands of very young people in a stadium jumping up and down um, as, as they sing this chant. Right, right. And we'll link to a video so people can watch that themselves. It's pretty dramatic, also because it includes these routines with flags and with fireworks and with synchronized movements and sometimes with creating images by everybody flip, like holding a yes, panel, right. you know, so it, yeah. It's, it's a tremendous popular art form, both literary and performance wise. And the you that they're addressing in the chat, so clearly the chant is sort of directed straight at the authorities Right. I mean, it doesn't have anything, you know, so often chants are sort of to your team or to the opposing team, but this <laughs> right. one goes straight out of the football stadium and, you know, they're sort of talking to the government, you know, all that you did this to us and you did that to us. Right. Um, yeah, there's, there's two different kinds of football chants that we have in this issue. And one is, yes, the kind of football chant that you're chanting at your opponent or at your team. Um, and I think that will maybe look most familiar to Anglophone readers. But then there's the other kind of football chant, which is this sort of popular art form in which there's somehow um, people have developed the courage to directly address the government with, with major grievances. And, I mean, we should say, you know, soccer football ultras are <laughs> particularly committed fans um, I think the sort of tradition of it comes from Italy and maybe Eastern Europe. I could be wrong. Um, and they, uh, I mean, they rehearse these, these songs and these things. I think nowadays, a lot of the organizing is done online. There also, there's a sort of a bit of secretiveness about how they're sort of structured because they have often been in trouble with the authorities Right. So they're not, it's not a hundred, it's not that clear how these groups organize, but people come to the stadium. I mean, of course you can sort of pick it up, but there's, there's, there's routines that have been learned by everybody. It's a real community. And also they can get their supporters like out very quickly to do something. Um, or they can get the message out, uh, about a sort of, you know, wanting to do something in the stadium at a particular time or even outside of the stadium. Um, and, and people are, I mean, it, like they say in the song and they talk about their passion, you know, that it's an extremely passionate community um, of, of folks that identify with the, with the teams. Um, and then of course, ultras were sort of very famous during the Arab Spring in Egypt because, right. um, yeah, as as I'm sure, of course, you 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 remember, um, 
after Mubarak was toppled, it became clear, or maybe even before, but a lot of stories sort of came out about it afterwards, that in the in the protests and in the clashes with police during the 18 days and then afterwards when there continued to be protests and clashes, that um, a lot of the people involved were football ultras um, who came down partly because they had a really long history of clashing with the police because they would fight the police outside of stadiums before and after games. And so the police were sort of their natural enemy. And so when there was a huge brawl with the police going on in central Cairo, they were eager to participate. Um, And they had a lot of experience in fighting the police. Uh, They had actual techniques for fighting the police. Um, So they, they played this kind of Maybe exaggerated in, 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 in retrospect, like there was, I think, a bit of a sort of like sort of super fascination with this subculture and a, and a bit of a sort of fetishization about them, you know, um, like they were the secret ingredient kind of to, to what happened. But, but they definitely played a role. Right. And also, in, as Mina Ibrahim writes about in this issue, in his essay, Egyptian Football's Missing Archives, the sort of, uh, I don't know, very famous and, and terrible killing of, of many ultras at, at a stadium. Right. Well, that, that, yeah, yeah. That was um, just a year later, but it feels like, in my memory, a completely different phase already of like a different era. But yeah, the, the right. Port Said massacre. I yes. mean... So you had this sort of golden moment where sort of everybody became aware of of ultras as a community and as what seemed like a kind of politicized almost youth movement because of this role they had played. And because I went back to re- try and remember um, the chants in Egypt and uh, there was one from the Zamalek White Knights, I think. Mm. Um, and I'll, I'll try and find it and, and include it here. But this chant was so explicit. And, and so this one was directed straight at the police. And it, it, it's called Mishnesin Tahrir. Like we won't forget Tahrir. Mm-hmm. We haven't forgotten Tahrir. And then it's, so they're in the stadium. They perform this chant after the revolution. And they're saying, they're yelling at the cops. And I sort of tried to translate it roughly, like the opening. But I mean, it says in Arabic, it's, so we won't forget Tahrir, you sons of bitches. The revolution was a naksa, like a catastrophe for you. And it just goes on. I mean, it's also like vulgar, purposely so, and insulting, you know. And then it's like, who do we need to tell? All cops are pimps. We kicked your ass like no one had in years. And it just goes on like that. Like it's a direct insult to the police. Right. Um, and, uh, 
because of that, you know, the relationship was already adversarial and then it just got more and more so. And so the massacre that you mentioned, which was this terrible um, game in Port Said where I think Al-Masri fans after the end of the game attacked Al-Ahli fans and like 72 people were killed because the doors to the stadium weren't open. So people were trapped inside, attacked and stampeded. And there was a lot of theorizing that the police had not opened the gates on purpose. Right. Yeah. And, and there is, there was apparently another um, smaller, not massacre, but, you know, killings uh, shortly after. And Mina Ibrahim writes very movingly in, in his essay that after that he decided he would never go to another game alone because at least he would have somebody to die with. Yeah, I mean, it became that you, if you were going to a football game, you you might die. I mean, I don't right. know. I mean, yeah, you're right. It happened more than once. And for, they, for years, they haven't allowed full stadiums in Egypt. I don't even know if they do to this day. They outlawed the ultras, like by legal court decision. And then because every time they'd let them in a little bit, there would be these huge violent clashes with the police. I think they the ultras themselves disbanded like officially because they were also getting arrested all the time. Mm. So it was very brief, their sort of moment in the spotlight. And then like almost every other um, sort of spontaneous uh, grassroots movement, they were completely crushed. Right, right. Although so the ultras in Morocco, Algeria and other places sort of persist in 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 their in their participation. Yeah, I mean the only way to really end it is to is to end games or like to right, not let people right. into the stadium. I mean otherwise how do you and you can go after I guess the people who run the groups. Um but again it's not I think not always that easy to identify. Well that's what's them. so fantastic fantastic about these sort of poems that we've included and of which there are many more that they're authorless right if you publish something even anonymously and it's a single author work yes you can absolutely be quite easily targeted your publisher targeted um the distributor targeted the bookstore targeted but for this kind of um poem on the air um it's it's different right i think there there is uh, a, a group associated who who penned Fibladi uh, Dalmuni, but they've, I think they're anonymous. Like I don't, I don't think it's known who the actual. I mean, I think they have an online name. And then the thing is, they put it out there. Like that's what you do with these things: is you you put it out there, and it gets reprised as like songs. And of course, it's it's for everybody. Uh, the whole idea is that you don't have ownership of it; you're giving it to your fellow ultras so yeah it's not uh it's not easy to find the author and that's and that's not the point and and i would say also it's sort of hard to render in translation like you can render the meaning but the um, it's hard to render how like fun and funny and clever and rhythmic they are because they almost always rhyme every right. line um and they're they're always in dialect like 
so they're, they're, they sound less formal, I think, in Arabic than they often do in, in the translation. And like Fibladi Dalmuni mixes French and Darja. And I mean, it has like a real beat to it. Right, right. Um, and which, the Algerian chants do as well, mixed between um, Darja and, and French. Yeah, no, I think, you know, um, if given the ultimate amount of time and resources, we would have found uh, poets to be able to render these into sort of a spoken word poetry in English. Um, I mean, it's a real talent. Like it's, 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 um, it, it, it takes time probably to, to try and render something, uh, that, that has that. And I don't know, it'd be like quite a challenge, um, to, to capture the, the rhythm as well as the meaning. Um, but the meaning in and of itself is also very strong and you definitely get a sense of how like, you know, with this talk about immigration and drugs and, uh, you know, just the idea that like you, the government have like, have it out for us and you want us to be, uh, you know, losers and, <laughs> and have no future. Like it's right. very harsh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, I, I, this was one of the most fun, exciting parts of, of the magazine is, um, this, this aspect of the poetry and of the popular literature in, I, I don't know, there was a, a period where, where Arabic, much of Arabic literature was, was popular, right? It was published in magazines that had very large circulations, sort of mid 20th century detective novels, um, detective stories in magazines, and then um, literature became separated from mass audience. A, a lot of literature became separated from mass audiences. There were still authors like Ahmed Khaled Tawfiq, you know, um, who wrote genre literature in, in the 90s. But a lot of literature became separated from mass publics. But this, the, the um, football literature, a lot of what, what we found in this issue um, was we, you know, um, these are pieces published online. There are pieces published in blogs. Um, uh, you know, distant from the sort of elite, you know, forms of of literature in you know formal magazines and uh, short story collections, novels. Uh, not all of them, but you know, um, a significant amount. And you know, it's just exciting to work with more popular literature and f much of it is also m remains beautiful as well. What made you decide to focus on football as a theme for an issue? Right. So our, <laughs> our art director, Hassan Muhtaseb, is a, um, he's a, a, an enormous fan of both literature and football. And it was his, it, he also, I think, has this sort of, um, uh, feeling like people often look down. He, so he works currently in Germany. He's Palestinian, grew up in Jordan, um, but had this feeling both in Jordan and in Germany that literary people look down on football and that football is considered sort of less a sport of the people, of the, of the unwashed masses. And he, he has always been a fan of both. And um, so this was really his, his impetus 
to put together a football issue. And he even <laughs> has a piece in this issue. The pitch is a crime scene at the end of the magazine. Oh, nice. Some somewhere in the magazine, I'm sorry, I can't remember in which in which piece, because I was privileged to read um the proofs as you're putting this together. Uh someone makes this explicit and says, you know, that writers are almost jealous of the popularity of football or view it as a sort of competition for the attention of the public and look down on it as maybe another form of sort of opium for the masses. Um, you know, the, the reason there we don't have enough readers is because everybody is glued to the television watching football. Um, I mean, right. So there's this, it's a, it was a series of interviews called why football is like writing. And, um, and, um, uh, there were many of them with different writers from around the region and, and Zafar chose three of them. And actually many of them sort of complained more about why football is not like writing because, um, a football star you know, you big football star, everybody in the world knows who they are. Whereas Nagib Mahfouz, you could say his name in the piazza in Italy and nobody will know who that is. Um, right. So yes, there was this, <laughs> in addition to people, you know, making metaphors about why football is like writing, a number of the authors also emphasized why football is not like writing. Um, and some of, you know, most of them sort of privileged writing, like writing is cooler and more intellectual and <laughs> fantastical than football. But I well, think the, you know, the idea behind the issue is, is, is not that football and literature uh, have a lot to say to each other. And um, I don't know, I like popular literature. <laughs> well, I think it just brings up this interesting, I think, frustration or insecurity uh, among among writers, uh, you know, in, in their feeling that the literature just doesn't, isn't, isn't, isn't valued or valorized enough. Um, and, and that there could be bigger audiences for it and for all sorts of like educational reasons and, you know, other reasons, political reasons too, like that is not, um, the kind of, uh, content that like, audiences are pushed towards. I mean, obviously I think it's, I think, I think, you know, people can enjoy football and, and books. It doesn't need to be a zero sum competition, but I think it just brings out, uh, you know, this, this feeling of, of literature being marginalized basically, um, you know, uh, which I think is, is, is widespread. Right. And I, I actually don't know by which mechanism literature became so separated from, from mass publics. You know, the, how we moved from detective magazines with circulation in the hundreds of thousands in the 1940s and 1950s to literature circulating among 500 readers being, you know, a success. Um, but somehow, yes, literature sort of closed in on itself can we just blame television? I don't think so because in <laughs> in you know in I mean, the US people didn't have instance, TVs people... in the 1940s and 50s when they were reading all those detective novels. So Okay, well that's true, but in some other countries people still read genre literature and popular forms of literature and um 
and also watch TV. Um, I, I think with Arabic literature is particularly marked like a separation from from reading publics. I also think that it points to a little bit of a rigidity in the definition of what is literature in the sense that, you know, there's there's a a, a very particular um, sort of construction often of what the public intellectual and the writer and the musakkaf is in Arabic culture that has, I think, ex can exclude a lot of popular culture and be too unnecessarily narrow. Yeah, um, I guess, I guess in general. So when people say Arabs don't read what they, you know, <laughs> they're referring to like particular kind of like printed book material that you can, and yes, uh, people reading blogs, for instance, which could be quite literary and fun. And we have translations of blogs, uh, blog posts in this issue. Um, are not considered, yes, literature, real literature. Right, and that somehow football in and of itself as a subject matter is not really a literary enough topic. Whereas I think, you know, that's that's not the case. And, and because football is so popular among so many people, it in fact is a really interesting subject. And, you know, is a kind of mirror of social issues in, in many ways and sort of can connect to all sorts of political issues as we saw or in social issues um, and, uh, you know, extremes of, of, of good and bad human nature because it's something else that people are very passionate about. In fact, it's a quite rich subject. I mean, as, as rich as any other. Um, and I think that comes through uh, in some of the writing uh, that you found. And, and some of the ones that I liked the most is also the ones where writing about football becomes a way of writing about a very particular time and place because it's so linked to both people's memories of their childhood and their youth, which is usually when they play, and of like particular places that they're from because it always starts out as a local thing, a neighborhood team, a city team, um, you know, before you get into the like national boundaries of football and, and, and that whole dimension. And so it can be a really great way of exploring uh, like micro dynamics in, in, in particular places and time and, and situating people. Uh, and you have some wonderful examples of that in the issue. Yeah, I was, so I had heard um, many times that Nagib Mahfouz played football as a young man. And, uh, but I'd never found any particular writing about his, uh, writing of his that was sort of compellingly about football. But in this other book of, that collects discussions and interviews with Nagib Mahfouz, that's about Nagib Mahfouz, um, he, he talks about how he almost became a sort of Olympic level footballer and that this was the other possible life in front of him, but also that very specifically about Egyptian football at the, in the early 1900s, about what drove him to it was seeing the Egyptians beat the English and that this was a, an area in which the, the Egyptians could beat the English on, on the pitch and that, that he wanted to be a part of that. 
Um, and then I think maybe literature he found that was another way. <laughs> I was going to say he was a nationalist writer. I mean, <laughs> in the end, right. um, he seems to, everything was quite colored by by his sense of, of nationalism, it seems. I also thought it was, he has a very sort of blasé way of saying, I could have been a, a, a superstar football player. <laughs> like he's very right. casual about it. The other, if I hadn't gone for the Nobel Prize in literature, I probably <laughs> would have been one of the best football players in Africa. <laughs> yeah, because basically I can do anything. Yeah, he's pretty matter of fact about it. But mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, would you read um, uh, the story or part of the story um, that's about the, the Syrian football team? Right, because uh, uh, this is another person, uh, Luqman Durki, a Syrian writer, who could have been, well, he, he did play in, in national football matches. Um, who, so he's both a writer, poet, and, and, you know, a real footballer. So this is, we have four pieces by Luqman, and they were all published um, online. And this is translated by Daniel Behar, Knocking on Blue Freedom's Door. Adil Kafu, head coach of our amateur team, informed us that we were heading to Aleppo Central Prison in Muslimiya to face the prison's team. We all cheered together for this precious rare encounter. Our goalkeeper, Abdul Kafu, told us about the strong friendships he maintained with some of the experienced criminals there and how they planned to make them gather crowds to root for us against our opponent. But how? Do the players belong to the police force or the thieves? One of our failed players asked us. The thieves, you moron, our always angry coach said. Our bus was setting out. Half of the players on the bus belonged to the Qafu clan, while the other half came from our neighborhood, Salahuddin. My friend Abdul Qafu was the team's joker. Usually he played goalkeeper under pressure. He stood as a formidable center back. In moments of desperation for a goal, he would come forward to attack, and then when chaos reigned, you would find him in midfield. He'd played for professional clubs, Al-Hraya, Al-Jala, Al-Ammal, but the neighborhood amateur teams always appealed to him more. Our team's name was Al-Shahba, and we were ranked in the second division of the amateur league. Nothing out of the ordinary here. The League of Non-Professional Neighborhood Teams is an organized affair formed in two divisions with the possibility of relegation and qualification for the upper division. We were engaged in qualification battle for the upper division. It was our natural place, which we had lost two years back. Our preseason preparations thus necessitated a number of friendly matches. The match in Nairab camp ended in a scuffle in which all the tough guys on our team took part. I was later accused of cowardice because I tried to break up the fight. When playing on neighborhood teams, you had to acquire karate skills first, football skills second. Instead of carrying red and yellow cards, the refs carry pocket knives for protection. A referee in these matches will have a 50% chance of getting beaten up by either the players or the spectators. No wonder the crowds show up. More often than not, it's to watch the fights rather than the football match. The historical record of the Aleppo College football field shows that Kambri, a famous referee, never left a match he officiated without causing a ruckus. Naturally, he suffered his share of scratches, bruises, and wounds, but he never once declined an offer to officiate matches, even as far as Kafir Hamra or El Safira. Officiating ran in Kambri's blood, and it was his nature to make bad calls that incited not only controversies, but brawls. 
there's no room for debating an unpalatable decision in amateur league matches. The cost of a penalty call will be a grinding skirmish that, with any luck, will last only 15 minutes until cool-headed members of the coaching staff and audience prevail in coming between the brawlers. But if the fight lasts longer than 15 minutes, forget about it. You can catch the match goodbye and stand by as crowds rush into a free-for-all battleground. Anyhow, to be brief, after giving our IDs to the guards, we entered the prison for the friendly match against the prisoner's team. We were welcomed by the prison warden, member of the team, and their coach, a prison officer. As a matter of course, the warden gave us a lecture, calmly at first, about the importance of sports. He cited the words of the eternal leader, Hafez al-Assad, it is my belief that sports equals life, and stirred himself up, using threats and warnings for those who were tempted to deviate from the leader's text. When he spoke, I saw myself for a moment as a prisoner, and I was scared of being thrown in jail if we committed some error. But the whistle blew, and the match began. So it continues, and it's really, uh, it's really lovely. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, you don't, you shouldn't give away the ending. I love it. It's also so, it's it has a great humor running through it, um, with their always angry coach and and the threatening warden and the skirmishes. Right, um, and I love how it he doesn't sort of uh, super valorize prisoners and like suggest that they're all political prisoners and wonderful stand up men, but also they're they're regular people as well. Yeah. As well as being as well as being caricatures. And and I think what this piece gets into too is like a couple dimensions of of football that I find fascinating kind of one is violence in mm. the sense that there's a lot of violence associated with the with the game. Um I mean we've talked about violence between the fans and the police, violence between fans and between players and with the ref and and because also it's still an overwhelmingly male game, especially in this part. I mean, it has been everywhere in the world. It's very recent, I think, that women have entered into football or soccer, you know, in, in anywhere. But it, here it's still overwhelmingly a, a game played by men. And it's a, it's a game marked by a fair amount of violence. And that's there in this story. And it's also the possibility of great unfairness is there in this story, right? right? Which is also so much a part of the game is the possibility of the game being corrupted, of the game yes. being unfair, of the game being manipulated. Mm. By political forces. So this this takes place in Syria, but um, uh, uh, Yassin Adnan, for, for example, also has an essay and an excerpt from his novel, Hot Morocco, which was translated by Alex Ilinson, um, in this issue. And in the essay, he talks about um, the Marrakesh team receiving sort of preferential refereeing. So it, as, as a way of boosting the team and boosting um, uh, audiences of the team and taking away from, from a political movement at the time as a way of sort of manipulating the, the young public. Right. I mean, because people are passionate about football the same way they are about politics, it, like mm. and more, actually, probably people care much more about their football team than about most p political parties in most Arab countries, I would say. <laughs> Maybe For I mean, reason. everywhere people <laughs> right, care more right. about their sports team than they do about their political party. Come on. Right. Right. Um, and 
and so and so a bit like politics it kind of permeates right like everybody's has an opinion everybody has a position uh vis-a-vis football teams and so also i think you know people have a lot of theories some of them conspiracy theories some of them accurate about why a certain team is up or down or who you know whether they're getting preferential treatment or not um and it's the same thing in italy where i grew up and where i mean mm. there are definitely teams that were given hugely like it's a preferential treatment i mean there's hit scandals you know over uh uh rigged refing and and things like this um and and uh there's this you know and it can go either like you said in the sense of uh the the powers that be are manipulating people by distracting them with their team's victories, like making them only care about football, right? Mm-hmm. Or they're punishing them by making their team lose. Right. Or or moving. So in Egyptian football's Missing Archives by Mina Ibrahim, he talks about how neighborhood teams are moved out of the Premier Leagues, pushed out of the Premier Leagues, and instead are replaced with sort of corporate teams and military and police teams. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting actually and that's a, that's a different kind of corruption. It the the sort of hyper commercialization of the game to where the that link between fans and the team is severed because the team is just a commercial creation with no like local base. And right. and there's no interest in local teams and it's all for, for sort of for for big money on television and so on and so forth. Um, and, and again, I mean, I'm not someone who has a football team or follows football uh, other than the World Cup. I don't watch any football. I watch the World Cup because I did grow up in Italy and like, come on. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I still find all of this very interesting. Yeah, well, I, I would admit I'm... Um... Uh, WNBA, Women's National Basketball Association, diehard, personally. I, I am extremely passionate about sport, um, uh, but it, about a different sport, about a sport that is popular where, where I'm from. Mm. And I, that's why I think everybody can, I mean, most people can relate, even if this isn't maybe this, the sport that they're, they're fans of, or even if you don't follow sports particularly. Again, I mean, when I watch these videos of all these fans, you know, um, or when you read these accounts of, you know, uh, people's neighborhood teams or these games, you know, where so much seems to be at stake, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, so. Yeah. I, I also thought another interesting thing was a lot of the stories we had submitted, um, were about football as played by children. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, there's also an association of sort of possibility with football, you know, in the same way um, there's, of, of course, you know, it is simply something that young people do. And so it's um, an easy way to create drama around um, young people well, and to and sort that- of paint a picture of their lives. Right. And also of all sports, I mean, again, not to romanticize it because I think it contains everything. It contains these dark sides, right? It, mm, it is right. just a reflection of 
society and human nature and so on and so forth. But it is a sport that is, the barrier to entry is very low. Like some, well, one of the stories, they're not even kicking a ball around. They're just kicking something around. Right. 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 So you, you need very little to play, which is, and it's, you know, probably the most popular sport across the entire world, uh, the most shared, the most easily accessed. Um, Except, you know, the one thing that, that I, except when you talk about it being so universal, except for, it does break down along gender lines. In a lot of parts of the world, I think still very few women play football. Um, And I started thinking about that actually, as I was reading these stories, you have several stories written by women, right? But I, I was even thinking about my childhood in Italy, and I never played football. Like the boys played football, but I I remember playing one football game in my entire childhood in the like courtyard behind the church uh, that was mixed between boys and girls, and and a boy got really rough with a girl, like really rough mm. in a way that was like. I don't know, like frustration that she was good, but also maybe some weird way of flirting. I don't know. He got really, <laughs> no, who knows, you know? Right, right. And we were at elementary age, I think, or maybe beginning of middle school. And then some older boys intervened and kind of quite roughly reprimanded him. But it, that was the only game I ever remember playing. And it didn't go that great. Um and right. my, my guy friends loved football and played all the time. And none of us girls did. And in, in Egypt and, and here in Jordan and in Morocco, you, you, you go around, you see, you know, football fields just full of little boys playing and usually not a single girl. And I have yeah, to say, no, it, it this makes was, me so sad. That, this was something that Hassan scolded me about. <laughs> um, <clears throat> he, he really was envisioning that there would be more about um, women players or an interview with a woman player in in the magazine, and uh, it it well it just it, it didn't shake out that way. You know, it's a, it's a um, in large. You know, it's not entirely a submissions based magazine. We we went a- around looking for chance and looking for people to translate chance, but. Um, yeah, there just was. Is but much I wasn't less saying about. Yeah, but I wasn't saying that to say like, oh, you should have, you know, right, included. Right, yeah. There's a reason that that maybe there's, uh, you know, it doesn't feature that many stories about female players. That's kind of reflective of the reality. I mean, you you can't always go out and and just counterbalance things when they're not balanced to begin with. Right. So Yasmin Hanush, for example, she has she's woman, a Rocky writer, <laughs> she has a story about football that I liked a lot. Um, and yes, the, the players in it are male. Which is, which would, which is probably accurate, like of whatever the, the setting and the time and the, you know, is, is what would happen. Right. Um, uh, I mean, there's not, I'm not raising this to sort of say one should do anything in particular. It's just, uh, as we're talking about all the associations that that writing and storytelling about football raised for me, one of them is a question of of gender and of what it means for sort of the most popular sport, 
the national sport because football is often the national sport, right? It's, mm. it's, it, and it, and it, and it gets very associated, right? With, with national identity for it to be so overwhelmingly male. Right. Yeah. And so Najwa Bin Shadwan's story, for instance, is set in Italy. And I don't think that there's a, a, any female character in it, uh, you know, also about the sort of corruptibility and corruption of, of football and the relationship between neighborhood and, and football. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I um, it, it's true that uh, we did um, think about how, how we could reflect that there are, of course, um, women playing football and what, what is their experience? Um, we just, I, I just didn't find the way to do it that I, that I felt fit in a, in a, you know, in a magazine that I want not to just to be sort of a sociological, um, look at what is football. Right. No, fun, you want- fun to read. You want, you want stories. You don't want bullet points. Like that's, you know, it it has to be, and it's a sort of organic thing. Um, But I I do think it's a, it's a rich subject. um, And, and it raises all these interesting questions about sort of high and low culture and about the relationship to authority, you know, with the, with the, tensions between the fans and the and the state that allows the games to take place and just all all sorts of interesting angles as a as a topic yeah no i mean so to just to say again about mina ibrahim's uh, egyptian football's missing foot missing archives is that you know he has this whole project with sort of egyptian football's hundred centenary um to put together a fan, like a real living fan archive of people's experience of the game, as opposed to the sort of almost erased nature of of public football archives, which is only the score who won, that's all that's maintained. Yeah, that's a very interesting idea. I mean, because... I think actually this is a fundamental sort of like challenge uh, in so many domains in, in the region is how much of cultural history is, is lost or purposely erased. Right. Particularly popular cultural history. Right. But also, you know, writers and, and Mm. films that, and music that's just, that's just not preserved or, or, or that's censored or that's just sort of left somehow on the wayside. I mean, we come across, you know, incredibly talented uh, artists or or works of like real genius that that have almost been forgotten or erased, you know, all the time. There's just so much richness there that should be, that that people have a right to be more aware of. There's such a like loss of legacy and history, I think. Right, right. In the the 20th century. And um, so I think that's that's a great idea. And also it makes me think about one of the other, chants that you include in the issue, which is the Ahlawi chant that's literally called Our Story. Right. Hakeyetna. Right. Right. Which was also selected by Bina. Yeah. And and we and in which they re they basically tell from their point of view and they're also talking about that stadium massacre that that we mentioned earlier. 
Um, and, and again, they're, they're addressing the authorities and, and, and they're insisting on like their version of events of what's happened in recent years and who's responsible. And, um, uh, yeah, it's, it, it is, it's, these chants are their story. Yeah. And, yeah. It's a sort of a beautiful act of narrativization and it, it would be, yeah, a shame to imagine in 20 years that this is sort of lost to some YouTube archive that nobody even knows about. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting also. So Mina also works on a prison. He works on a prison archive project about stories um, from prisons across the region. And um, the, the football archives is more, I think, of a passion project. Cool. Well, we'll put links to all of this uh, in the show and obviously to the issue of Arab Lit Quarterly itself, um, which I encourage you all to 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 run to get. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or you can just click. You don't actually have to run. Right, right, right. <laughs> Um, okay, well, we'll be back uh, in a couple weeks. And uh, in the meantime, um, please, if you like the show, share, subscribe, um, and, and rate it. That's always helpful. Um, and uh, we'll be back soon. All right. Thanks so much, Ursula. Thanks. Bye, dear. Bye. <laughs> Oh